Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky today warned that Russia is now planning to bombard the port city of Odessa while renewing the plea for a no-fly zone. Countered by President Putin's warning to the West that any country declaring a no-fly zone would be seen as an enemy combatant. Yeah, that has been become quite the conversation. Well, it has been for now for a couple of weeks as uh, you watch the horror that's going on in Ukraine, and it is horrible. It is absolutely horrible, and there's no reason to think it's not going to get worse. They're going full Syria. Russia is going full Syria on Ukraine, and they're just going to pummel people in buildings until... Not even until they submit. They're They're just whimpering, and you just walk in and take over, I guess. Right. It's beyond submit. It's like you can't even resist anymore. Oh, and by the way, if you are in the mood for just utterly loathsome... Uh, the word is uh, Russia is now Ukraine is now recruiting veterans of Assad's war of genocide against the Syrian Syrian people. I'm sorry, I'm trying to read and talk at the same time. Always a bad idea. Uh, he's they're recruiting Syrians who are hardened in block to block, street to street slaughter of civilians, use of chemical weapons. Guys who are so hardened they don't give a damn about executing a family in the street or that sort of thing. If you can imagine. Great Scott. So here's uh, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida on the idea of a no-fly zone. People need to understand what a no-fly zone means. It's not just it's not some rule you pass that everybody has to oblige by. It's the willingness to shoot down the aircrafts of the Russian Federation, which is basically the beginning of World War III. Right. So not only do you have to be willing to shoot down um, Russian planes, but the first thing you do in establishing a no-fly zone so you don't get your plane shot down is you take out the anti-aircraft stuff, which is going to be a direct attack on Russian equipment and probably kill Russian soldiers. That's before you even start the idea of shooting their planes out of the sky. Uh, New York Times column over the weekend from Ross Duthat draws on the experience of the uh, Cold War and how we handled that on and on why we should not have a no-fly zone. I'm not, I'm not sure I agree with this, but I'll just give this to you and, uh, and discuss. We were extremely careful about direct escalation with the Soviets even when they invaded Hungary, if you're familiar with that story back in 56 or Czechoslovakia in 68 or what was going on in Afghanistan. We stayed out of those. As people were slaughtered in the streets by the Soviet Union, we stayed out of those. And the result was a Cold War victory without nuclear war. To escalate now against a weaker adversary, one less likely to ultimately defeat us and more likely to engage in atomic recklessness if cornered, would be a grave and existential folly. That might be true, but it is kind of weird to make the argument that we didn't get involved because they were too strong, but we're not going to get involved this time because they're too weak. (laughs) Okay, so, all right. Right. I'm reminded that there are many think tanks in Washington, D.C., getting many, many dollars contributed, and in return they churn out papers, um, and, and often they're very well thought out and very intelligent, but they're as likely to be wrong as right. Uh, I was reading a point, a, a, 
compare and contrast of Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait back in the day and how we assembled an international coalition and and drove him back and, and many, many nations of the world joined together in what was clearly, clearly overwhelming force and said, this will not stand in a civilized world. And that was one tin horn dictator invading another tin horn dictator's little oil country um, and and it really didn't have that much, it didn't make that much difference on the international scene or in terms of human rights or, or the world order or anything like that. I mean, obviously it was a bad example, but it just wasn't that big a deal. Well, we put together a, f- a half a million troops, like 90 countries involved. Right. And the contrast drawn was, now wait a second, here you have a malevolent power in Europe taking on a free people for utterly uh, morally and politically indefensible reasons, and the West has done essentially nothing. And I don't have it in front of me. i got to find it because it was really well written. But it pointed out for a couple of reasons. Number one, Europe's fantasy that pacifism would bring peace over the last several decades. The The childlike, unicornian, moronic notion that weakness brings peace. It's hard for me to even wrap my head around somebody believing that, but some people do. And the second thing is America's overreach, horrible handling of the Iraq thing. Even if the Iraq invasion was a good idea, the execution of it was unforgivable. And then the terrible pullout of Afghanistan uh, and Putin knew, as Chairman Xi knows, that America's kind of on the back foot. We're not really confident on when we project power and how we project power and that sort of thing. And, you know, you can't undo what's done. But if some of those terrible mistakes hadn't been made, this is absolutely the sort of thing where those 141 countries that voted to condemn the invasion in the, in the UN would have said, yeah, hell yeah, we're in, are in. Uh, we're in, our guys are in, our weapons are in, Putin, you're not taking Ukraine. And it would not have happened, and the nuclear arms saber-rattling wouldn't have happened. But unfortunately, I think you'd need a time machine to undo what's been done. Right. Um, let me read a little from this Wall Street Journal opinion piece from the editorial board. But, like, yeah, I've got a little of my question. So we don't get to say to him, hey, yeah. We got a lot of nuclear weapons, too. You want to get into that battle? Here's what it'll look like. Rather, we just, well, I'll read from this. Everything American won't do on Ukraine. This is the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Telling Putin what he doesn't need to worry about won't stop him. The WSJ saying, we support President Biden's effort to assist Ukraine against Russia, and his administration has raised its game considerably since the invasion. But one continuing frustration is the administration's habit of telling Vladimir Putin what the U.S. and NATO will, NATO will not do. The tendency was on display again Friday at a NATO summit in Brussels, where Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked at a press conference about the alliance imposing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. His response will not cause Russian tank drivers to lose any sleep. Uh, with regard to the no-fly zone, that's my Anthony Blinken impersonation, where I sound like an academic. Even as we're doing everything we can to give the Ukrainian people the means to defend themselves effectively against Russia, we also have a responsibility to ensure that the war doesn't spill over to beyond Ukraine. He added, the only way to actually implement something like a no-fly zone is to send NATO planes into Ukraine. That would start a war in Europe. President Biden has been clear that we are not going to get into a war with Russia. I'm not advocating a war with Russia, but there's already a war in Europe. 
Right. We and uh, start one. The Wall Street Journal adds, on, no one wants a U.S.-Russia shooting war, and Mr. Blinken makes an important point that a no-fly zone would require NATO pilots engaging with Russian planes. For that and other reasons, we've said a no-fly zone would be hard to implement and might divide NATO. But why tell Mr. Putin that he has nothing to fear no matter what he does in Ukraine? If he had some doubt about greater military assistance to Ukraine, the Russian might not be so willing to bomb cities with indiscriminate artillery and cluster bombs. And recruit Syrians to go slaughter people in their homes. Is there a reason we can't say everything's on the table, even if we wouldn't do it? Is it just the domestic politics? Is that what he's worried about? But I, I think so. We have an open society. We discuss these things. Imagine saying to a guy who's shoved your kid and spit on your wife, I'm gonna t- I just want to let you know, no matter what you do, I am not going to throw a punch. Let's just make that clear from the beginning. Right. No matter what happens, I will not throw a punch at you. What 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 strategy is that? How do you have any leverage if you start with all the things you won't do? Right. Right. There's it's, got it, to be a better way. Well, and it's incredibly difficult to stand by and watch the horror unfold and do nothing when you know we, the free world, have the capability to do something. But to to say it's not our fight, Putin's going to stop at Ukraine, almost certainly, and if he doesn't, that's when we move. Uh, it, it's unfortunate, but we have to, we we can't escalate this. Is that cynicism? Is it isolationism? Is it realism? It's in the eye of the beholder. Well, sometimes you realism is really hard to take, but the idea oh, yeah. that the crazy, belligerent guy gets to set the terms, he gets to decide how far everybody's going to go. Because we don't want to make him mad. That is yeah, something. It's, tr- it's troubling. It's hard to take. You know, the other thing, and I, God, I think so hard about because I want to bring you good people like a well-reasoned opinion on the stuff and, and maybe say how I think it ought to go. But it is so complicated. Uh, I mentioned before the invasion, some of you I'm sure remember this. I was citing a think tank guy from Europe. He's a Russian expert, uh, very, very well thought of. And he wrote an essay on why Putin would not invade. And he spelled out a lot of the things we're saying. He said, Putin does, he's going to do himself much more good by just constantly threatening it and not doing it. Because if he invades, that's going to coalesce NATO. It's going to bring NATO together in a way that they haven't seen in years. Because NATO is getting weak and kind of argumentative with each other and blah, blah, blah. It would hurt the Russian economy. It would do this. This guy was right every single step. Except Putin made the opposite decision. Right. So, man, this stuff is hard. Yeah. Leaders don't always do what's in their nation's interest. That has been proven time and time again throughout history. All right. They and have again. their own reasons, psychological, personal, whatever. Also, uh, took in a great podcast over the weekend and asking the question I've been asking. Does American opinion change? Germany has changed 180 degrees on their view of their interaction with the world and particularly with Russia. How much does opinion change in the United States on the idea of this whole no-fly zone? If it's for domestic consumption that 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 Biden needs to say out loud, look, a no-fly zone, no chance of that. No chance we get involved. None of our pilots, no boots on the ground, no matter what. If that's for domestic consumption, what if opinion changes as we see more of these videos of these, uh, you know, dead kids on the street, if you saw that over the weekend? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It's it's hard because the way politics moves in our country is very different than in a totalitarian regime. And for instance, if those interventionists among us, you know, throw around the term neocon if you want, um, if they get too much air and they get uh, 
and you don't cut them off, they will involve us in another foreign war that will probably end badly. I'm, I'm speaking from the point of view of the Biden administration. Um, and so you want to tamp that down. At the same time, though, I really appreciated, you know, some of the leaders in the past saying nothing is off the table. Right. Nothing. Right. Then maybe in a cabinet meeting or with the Joint Chiefs, you say, all right, we're almost surely not going to do this unless X, Y, and Z happen. But you don't make it that public. I, I well, there's a there's a crazy old senile guy in charge that doesn't help. Yeah, I'm glad that kept care. I can be convinced a no-fly zone at this point is starting World War III, but I can't be convinced that you announce to your opponent everything you're unwilling to do from the outset. I, that just seems crazy to me. I could see, well, yeah, I don't know. There are all sorts of scenarios, and you never know what's going to happen when you let loose the dogs of war. They don't come back when you call. Um but instead of a no-fly zone, which would necessitate taking out air defenses on Russian territory, because they would put them six inches inside their border. Um, instead of that, you say, hey, Ukraine's beautiful this time of year. 75,000 American troops have decided to vacation there. We're going to start in the far west, and then we're going to explore to the east. Now, we're not going to shoot at anybody unless they shoot at us, but we sure do love our Ukrainian vacations. So that would put it on him. Do you want to start World War Three? Mm-hmm. As opposed to him putting it on us. Your decision. Yeah. You want to fire on American troops and start World War III? Does that seem like a good idea to you? I don't know. What do you feel about that? Text line 415-295-KFTC. One more thing I want to hit is how thin we're slicing this on whether or not we're actually in World War III, among other things on the way. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Man, there was a lot to hate on Saturday Night Live, but uh, kind of friend of the Armstrong and Getty Show, that dude that does the Trump impersonation, was on his game as usual. Here's a little of him doing Trump. This is incredibly exciting. No, 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 no. I'm not going to listen to that. Stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. I don't want to hear anything. Honestly, makes me too mad to enjoy it. If we can edit that down to where it's just Trump, I will uh, play it later. Every bit, every other part of it was so freaking out of bounds, in my opinion. I just, I can't enjoy the the, the humor. Yeah, it was insufferable. Uh, Saturday Night Live, after a brief, like, vacation from its idiotic one-sided rhetoric, oh. just tripled down on the concept of all Republicans are stupid racists. Yeah, yeah, obviously, just as a whole, all stupid racists. Yeah. Or conservatives F, in general. F you, Saturday Night Live. Right. Doesn't mean right. this is not funny. I don't know. Can it be funny now after I've been yelling and screaming? No. Can't make the... Can't, Joe, Joe, Joe says we can't make the pivot. Well, he, no. He might I mean, be right. Uh, 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 between the people who are just pissed off at the general tone of it and then Trump fans, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure what's in it for us. No. His Trump imitation is stunningly good. Hey, how about this? Uh, but you already know that. Maybe you can explain this breaking news to me. I'm looking up at CNN. I doubt it, but go ahead. Supreme Court to revive Bill Cosby's sexual assault prosecution. What? Do you remember how he got out? Why? And is the Supreme Court involved now? 
it, it was that whole and and I got to look into it. So don't hold me to this. It was the whole question of he was deposed in a civil lawsuit and assured by the prosecutor in writing, we will not prosecute you criminally. So go ahead and spill the beans at the civil uh, procedure. And then a new prosecutor came in office and said, I didn't sign that. We're going after you. So that rises to the level of a Supreme Court look. It's it's an interesting legal question whether, you know, a, a simple turn of a calendar or a quick election can render the promises of the government to a defendant void. And as loathsome as Cosby and his behavior are, you know, as a, a fan of civil liberties, the idea that, uh, I don't know, some prosecutor cuts a deal with me. Maybe I haven't even done anything because that happens all the time. And I say, okay, all right, I'll sign. Then he says, you know, I'm sick and tired of this job. I'm going to go fishing for the rest of my life. And his deputy takes over, and that deputy says, I'm going to use everything you said against you. I don't have to hold to his opinions when they both represent the government. How many people will understand that this is not the Supreme Court deciding whether or not Bill Cosby is guilty of being a perv? You, me, and the people listening right now. And that's it. It's the entire list. Right. Awesome. Oh, I didn't get to the how close, how thinly we're slicing it on whether or not we're directly in a war with Russia. I mean, it's it's being sliced so thin, it, it almost seems like an argument for the no-fly zone to me. Because the step from where we are to that is tinier than you might think. Right, the whole question of a proxy war, or we're sending contractors, but not soldiers, and and arms, too, and ammunition, too, but we're not in the war. Not our planes, but Poland's planes, and then we'll resupply Poland? I mean, what the heck? Planes are fungible. Um, All that on the way. If you miss an hour of the show, grab the podcast, armstrongandgetty.com. Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Vladimir Putin, who I'm, uh, I'm told is, is now increasingly isolated, is just taking advice from his, his inner circle, that there are only uh, about three people who matter right now. And that speech that Putin gave yesterday, a bizarre location, speaking at Aeroflot to uh, a, a group of flight attendants, uh, he sounded incredibly angry he was he sounded detached he was talking about uh how the ukrainians here are machine gunning people that they're driving around in cars packed with explosives jihadi style and he went uh very deep and repeatedly on this theme that they're fighting against the nazis it was the angriest i've ever seen him the angriest i've ever seen him says richard engel we have more on Putin's mindset and strategy and how he got to this point. Really interesting perspective from a former Russian diplomat. We'll get to next segment. Uh, I, I guarantee you will find it interesting. Stay with us if you can. Is Putin like OJ, where he's convinced himself of something? It happens. Even a mind as disciplined as his. So I think gas is about to get really expensive. We got more some of the projections on that coming up. As today... Nancy Pelosi, that's Pelosi, is introducing legislation that seems to have a lot of support from R's and D's to stop taking oil in from Russia. A lot of the heavyweights commenting on it yesterday, including Marco Rubio. We have more than enough ability in this country to produce enough oil to make up for the the percentage that we buy from Russia. This notion that somehow banning Russian oil would raise prices on American consumers is an admission 
that this guy, that this killer, that this butcher, Vladimir Putin, has leverage over us. So I think we have enough of it. We should produce more American oil and buy less Russian oil or none, actually none at all. Yeah, I like that angle. Look, you're making the argument I'm trying to make when you tell us that cutting off Putin is going to raise the price of gas. Yeah, we don't want to be dependent on a crazy evil person. Uh, Chris Christie on the topic also. You have to ban Russian oil, and you have to increase domestic production. And that is where Joe Biden's going to have the problem, because he's held captive by the environmental left. That What John Kerry, John Kerry his guy, said last week, that the real tragedy of Ukraine is it's slowing our efforts on climate change. That will summarize what the far left's view is about domestic oil production. Those are both Republicans. How about one Democrat before we get into the projections? We have the ability to ratchet up and be able to backfill. Mm-hmm. We have the energy. We have the resources here. And we have the technology. We're a million barrels short a day right now that we can just ramp up like that. We can do certain things. And we don't have to put any more pain on the American people that are already suffering with inflation now. You want bipartisan support for something, Mr. President? You got it right there. Boy, I got to point out how Chris Christie was almost shouted down by the other people on the panel for even raising the insane, ridiculous point of view that the environmental left has a lot of pull in the Democratic Party, often toward policies that don't make any sense. They just reject. They tried to shout him down. Please. Self-evident. It makes zero sense that we could produce all the oil we need, but we don't because we're green. But we use the same amount, and we Venezuela do it, and we buy it from Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or Russia. How is that possibly better for the world? Let me see how many craps I give about the environment. Uh, No craps, I give no craps. (laughs) But we're farming our oil production out to them in the name of the environment. What the hell is the matter with you people? Anyway, so if we do, and it looks like we're going to decide to, we don't take Russian oil anymore. Analysts at Bank of America warned warned or pointed out that if most of Russia's oil exports are cut off, there could be a 5 million barrel a day shortfall or more heading to oil prices that will double from the current $100 to $200 a barrel. Yikes. J.P. Morgan, a little less dramatic, but they said oil would go to 185 a barrel. It's currently like a dollar eight or a hundred and eight or something like that. Yeah, it's it's higher than that now. But so one eighty five is the sober analysis, right? Oh boy. Well, um, which which uh, in the short term, it's worth pointing this out. Actually, benefits Russia because they can still continue to sell to the Chinese, and the higher the price of oil, the better it is for Putin. One of the numbers on the benchmark Brent oil, whatever that means, is at 139.13 this morning, up 20% from Friday. Yikes. What does that do to gas eventually? Uh, it'll go up by a similar percentage. Well, if, if, the, if a barrel of oil doubles, you think the price of gas will double? So Californians will be paying nearly... $12 a gallon in Los Angeles? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know if it's that direct. I'd, I'd be guessing. Okay, so if it was a half again bigger. Yes, it would be nine expensive AF, as the kids say. And how, Shockingly, lifestyle changingly. And how do you expect Americans to uh, react to that politically? Given the current sentiment, they will blame Putin for starting the war. Good. Well, you should. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. That's the yeah. place to put your anger. Yeah, although, I think so. Although, I tweeted out, 
I tweeted out one of the pictures that you find at gas stations all over America. Oh, boy, yeah. Either the little let's go branded, or I really like the Biden, I did that. Right. You know, where he points at it and people put the sticker on there pointing to the price of the gas. Right. You're going to see more and more of those because while Putin did start the war, as you just heard from two Republicans and the Democrat, us cutting back on our production has a role. Well, yeah, and, and the especially vexing part of it is that we cut back on our production in ways that we can't undo for one to two years, optimistically, if the oil companies can find workers. Mm. Never mind getting the gear re, you know, uh, set up to work again, and, and it has to be prepared and reconditioned and the rest of it. you got to find people, which any employer listening can tell you is, is kind of difficult these days. Yeah, so uh, a slight change of topic because uh, next segment we're going to get to how crazy Putin might be or not. Um, on your topic of finding workers, I have mentioned this a number of times of uh, amazement and compassion for the the last level of workers that are out there that are now being hired. I'm so interested in this topic. I, I hope it's explored more by... I don't know, documentary film filmmakers or PhD students or somebody. So for most of American history, it's been seen that like 4% is roughly as low as you can get on unemployment. But so is that as low as we would ever want to get? As we were finding, apparently, that as you start to bump up against that next crowd of people that are out there, they're just, and I hate to say this. Mm, careful. Well, it's true. They're practically worthless. There's a worthless, like, 3% of workers out there. You don't want them working at your business. You don't want to encounter them at a restaurant or a, or a, a, a cash register anywhere. They just are completely unemployable. Is that, has that always been the, the case with human humanity? That Can about- we use the term inexcellent or something as opposed to worthless? I mean, they will bring you the water you asked for eventually, probably. If there's nobody there, that water ain't going to walk itself to your table. Inexcellent. So they have <laughs> worth. Inexcellent. They are of questionable uh, quality. Well, has it always been true in human history, though, that about whatever it is, two, three percent of humans just have nothing to offer society from a from an economic standpoint? No, because, uh, well, yeah, uh, that who that is changes, though, because in the past, just having a strong back was enough to give you plenty of worth. But now that guy can't find a job, not particularly bright, strong, but. Dumb, frankly, yeah, it's a t- it's tough times for people like that. Oof, you know, and and a, a lot of these people didn't choose to be that way. Some did, sure, through, drugs, uh, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. But, but but most didn't, and uh, and I have I do have compassion for that. But I just I think it's interesting to find out that there's about three percent of Americans that you don't want working. It's certainly not in the service economy, but that unemployable group, uh, very, uh, you know, in yesteryear and not very long ago, could have been the incredibly smart and cerebral, but physically infirm. They were good point. Not useful as workers. Very good point. You get out on the plains of where I'm from a hundred years ago, and the fact that you're uh, smart as heck with math might have been completely worthless Mm -hmm. to the local town if you weren't strong enough to lift bales of hay all day long. Right. Yeah, you're right. It changes over time.
Oof. So I urge you to be more careful with your verbiage, sir. So we're supposed to go with inexcellent. I don't know. That's a good one. Good just term. Worthless, crappy, that sort of thing. I just I don't think it helps anybody. It's a bad look. Probably doesn't. You're wearing a suit, but you say stuff like that. <laughs> Better to remain silent and be thought a fool. <laughs> dot dot dot. Something, something, something. <laughs> Is Putin crazy next? Armstrong and Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. He also, in a conversation he had with Connie Rice, he said that um, Russia has only been great when it's been under a strong leader. Mm-hmm. And what was his definition of strong leaders? Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, Ivan the Terrible, and Joseph Stalin. That's the tradition in which he, I think, sees himself as the great restorer of the Russian Empire. That's really what this is about. We have to understand that Putin is bent on a military victory. He wants to destroy Ukraine, decapitate the leadership. Uh, He doesn't care about how many casualties this causes, what happens to the civilian population. Uh, This is a a messianic mission that he is on. This is why he has to be stopped. Yeah, and that's why I think a lot of right-wing arguments that we put him in a position where he had no choice by talking about NATO, he's wanted Ukraine for empire reasons for his entire life and georgia and other places yeah absolutely true mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh that was stephen hadley and uh kurt volker by the way for those of you who are up on diplomats of yesteryear <laughs> and and you know this year as well sure came across this thread about uh, Putin's mindset in this situation. I thought it was very, very interesting. It's from Andrei Kosyarev, who was a Russian diplomat who was getting out as Putin was consolidating power. He didn't like the the cut of his jib, as they say. And I'll just read you some of it. I just, I'm super into this stuff. I hope you find it as interesting as I did. Uh, he says, lots of discussions about the threat of nuclear war from the Kremlin and whether Putin is rational. I share my thoughts in this thread. To frame, I do not believe Russia would use nuclear weapons, and I believe Putin is a rational actor. First of all, I want to examine where the questioning of Putin's rationality started. I think it began because most people, particularly in the West, view his decision to invade Ukraine as utterly irrational. I disagree. It's horrific, but not irrational. To understand why the invasion was rational for Putin, we have to step into his shoes. Three beliefs came together at the same time in his calculus. One, uh, on Ukraine's condition as a country, which we'll get to. Two, Russia's military condition. And three, the West's geopolitical condition. One, on Ukraine's condition. Putin spent the last 20 years believing that Ukraine is not a real nation and at best should be a satellite state. As uh, Stephen Hadley put it in a different clip, that Russia can't be an empire without Ukraine. They need Ukraine to be what they're supposed to be. Uh, Maidan, the giant uh, protest and everything that overthrew the Kremlin-linked government a number of years back, uh, ended any hope of keeping Ukraine independent and pro-Kremlin. Putin thought the West was behind it. If Ukraine's government cannot be kept independent and pro-Kremlin covertly, uh, then he will overtly force it to be. He also started to believe his own propagandists that Ukraine is run by a Nazi bandera junta. Perfect pretext to denazify Ukraine. So he believes those people. Yeah, which is a little loopy. Um, that's almost irrational. But God, I'd say. 
Well, we'll go on. Two, the Russian, and yes, we're aware of the neo-Nazi movement in Ukraine. Thank you. Send along your links. Thanks. Fine. We've seen them. Two, Russian military. The Kremlin spent the last 20 years trying to modernize its military. Much of that budget was stolen and spent on mega yachts in Cyprus. But as a military advisor, you cannot report that to the president. So they reported lies to him instead. A Potemkin military. If you're familiar with that reference. I did not know this. Wow. So he... Putin thinks his military is better than it is. According to this guy. Well, if uh, if that's the case, then he's shocked to see it bogged down in the mud with bad tires, etc. Right, and inability to deliver gasoline and food on time. I can't remember the name of the number one uh, in the Russian military, but he's a trusted advisor to Putin and often seen as Putin's successor. And this is going to weaken him terribly, but that's that's another topic for another day. Uh, and, And the third... Uh, calculation by Putin about the West. The Russian ruling elite believed its own propaganda that President Biden is mentally inept. Well, they also thought the EU was weak because of how toothless their sanctions were in 2014. That was the snatching of Crimea. And then the U.S. botched its withdrawal from Afghanistan, solidifying this narrative. If you believe all three of the above to be true, and it's your goal to restore the glory of the Russian Empire, whatever that means, then it is perfectly rational to invade Ukraine. He miscalculated on all three, but that doesn't make him insane, simply wrong and immoral. So in my opinion, he is rational. Given that he's rational, I strongly believe he will not intentionally use nuclear weapons against the West. I say intentionally because indiscriminate shelling near a nuclear plant can cause an unintentional nuclear disaster in Ukraine. Oh, that reminds me. i got to talk about Chernobyl in a minute. I will take it a step further. The threat of nuclear war is another example of his rationality. The Kremlin knows it can try to extract concessions, whether from Ukraine or the West, by saber-rattling its last remaining card in the deck, nuclear weapons. The ultimate conclusion here is that the West should not agree to any unilateral concessions or limit its support to Ukraine too much uh, for the fear of nuclear war. So one guy, Russian diplomat, didn't like Putin, got out. That's a hell of a gamble. I mean, you are, uh, you know, here's the way I see it. Oh, guess I was wrong about that as the mushroom clouds go up. Right. Um, well, and then I would counter, and and both are absolutely true, letting totalitarians run roughshod over the free world, even as flawed a democracy as uh, Ukraine has its own enormous risk. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I'm more on the side of the Wall Street Journal. Let's stop telling Putin things we won't do. Um, But so we're slicing it so thin. I think this is really interesting. Yesterday, Secretary of State Blinken said NATO countries have the green light to send fighter jets to Ukraine. Okay, so jets are going to be transferred from Poland to Ukraine. Poland agreed to this because Poland doesn't want to lose their air force. So we're helping them out by by refilling their planes. So they're going to give planes to Ukraine. Then we're going to give F-16s to Poland so that their air force will still be whole. Well, not only that, it's an upgrade. They're going to get some really good planes. And as somebody pointed out here. I didn't pay the guy you're fighting. My neighbor did. I just paid my neighbor's rent this month because he was broke. I mean, that is exactly what's happening. I mean, planes are fungible. Um, it's and and that passes for not directly being involved or directly aren't. I, I don't. You know, I don't know. I guess it works. Well, right. So everybody passes their planes one down the line. But the big superpower that makes the planes can't be blamed for that maneuver. But the United States is not specifically providing planes to the Ukrainians. That would be crossing a line. 
we're giving them guns and bombs and Stinger anti-aircraft missiles and everything else. What, what is it? Is planes over the line? Which line? And in effect, giving them planes? Well, right. Of course. So that's, Everybody that's what's passed so, with your plate one to the right. That's what's so weird about how thinly sliced this is of what would trigger World War Three. Yeah. Poland gives them a plane. We give Poland a plane. <laughs> But if we gave planes directly to Ukraine, that'd be crossing the line, and then it's World War Three. All right. And, and we certainly can't have an American pilot in a plane. Can we have an American uh, mechanic on the ground? Can we have him on the ground in Poland? And then he fixes the plane, and it goes back across the border? Almost That's certainly. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course, it's Poland. Yeah. They're a NATO country. Yeah. Uh, and this is the stuff on which nuclear holocaust balances? Yeah. Maybe. Right. I, I hope this diplomat guy, Andrei Kosyarev, is right that Putin's not going to start a nuclear holocaust. He's rational. He's just wrong. This whole question of rational and how you define rational is wearing me out. Yeah. I, you know. Here, here. Here, here. <laughs> yeah. There's rational. There's stupid. There's wise. Misguided. Losing yeah. your temper. Exactly. I'll, I'll tell you right now. I'm a rational man. Very rational. When I lose my temper, I'm not. So, ugh. That's my conclusion. Quote or, me. Or sometimes you get pushed into a corner. You don't. You're not. Don't make rational decisions. Right. Right. Craziness. <sighs> and the American people. What do we think? Opinions in Europe have turned on a dime. Changes I never thought I would see about the Nord Stream pipeline, etc. We'll bring you a little more of that. Plus some some non-Ukraine uh, stuff that's worth getting to on the home front next hour. If you don't get the next hour, grab it via podcast at armstrongandgetty.com. That's pretty cool. You can get just like an individual hour of the show. Sure. Through podcast form at armstrongandgetty.com. You got to go to work or whatever. Yeah, listen later. I was completely unaware of this. That sounds pretty cool. Armstrong and Getty.